We begin this month, as preacher mentioned this morning, our month of evangelism. As the summer months heat up, we can no longer use the excuse that our 50 degree weather in January and February is too much to keep us from going out and asking folks to come to church. So we, we kind of decided that this month, especially the month precluding uh, and leading up to Anniversary Sunday, we would emphasize our evangelism and, and our witness to our friends and our relatives and our neighbors. And so we've chosen for the theme this month to uh, be worthy of Him in our evangelism. We'll start reading in verse number 1 of chapter number 26. And, and this is a fantastic portion of Scripture over the past several chapters Probably the greatest law and order episode ever recorded is written down in Scripture here. Uh, I'm talking, there is so much drama that takes place in the Apostle Paul's life as he's brought before council after council, in, in front of judge after judge, only going to the next highest in line. Uh, at one point, the Jews are so angry at Paul that they decide to make a covenant with each other that they're not going to eat another bite of food until they kill him. And, and 40 men take this pledge, if you will, and, and they decide to somewhat politically do it. So they say, hey, let's go to the next court and in his transfer, we'll overtake him and we'll kill him. See what I mean? That's, that's pretty awesome television, if you will. They're a, a, a scheme and a plot to kill a, a transferred inmate. I mean, that's like Fast and the Furious meets Gone in 60 Seconds meets Chariots of Fire. I'm not sure, but all these things. I mean, this is some pretty awesome drama playing out in Scripture here. And then what, what has happened is, as it's gone uh, 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 court case to court case, judge to judge... Now a man by the name of King Agrippa comes into the scene. And, and what's unique about King Agrippa is Paul, just the day before, has given his witness or his uh, defense in front of a man by the name of Festus. Now Festus, just in, in, in casual conversation, mentions this almost mentions Paul's case, how that there's people accusing him of things with no proof. He thinks he's innocent, but he, he wants to send him up to the next highest. He wants to send him to Caesar, but uh, he even looks at King Agrippa and he's like, but I think it's odd to send someone to Caesar and ask him to try a case for which I have no clue what he's being accused of. And there's some crazy drama in Scripture playing out. And I'd encourage you, if you have time this evening, read over chapters about 24 to 26 and 27. It's great, great Bible. For the sake of time, we won't have time to cover all of that. But what you need to know is, as this man by the name of Festus has mentioned this court case, if you will, to King Agrippa, Agrippa becomes interested and he essentially says, not as some presiding ruler or judge over the case, he just says, I would be very interested to hear this man's defense. So verse number 1 of chapter number 26, the Bible says, Then Agrippa, that's King Agrippa, said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. Now, Paul was not a guy that could not stand up for defense of himself. I believe he had some uh, attorney background, some uh, 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 defense in the law, and some education in the law. So, you giving Paul a platform to defend himself is, is quite an opportunity for Paul to do some great things. So, verse number 2, Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, known, know all the Jews, 
which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Basically, verse number five, he says, I used to be on their team. Verse number six, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? What a tremendous question. In Bible college, in homiletics class, uh, Dr. Getch taught us, statements accuse, questions uh, uh, make you think. And Paul, instead of saying, I can't believe you're so small-minded to think that God's not capable of raising someone from the dead, Paul says it like this, why would it be such a miracle if God wanted to raise somebody from the dead? He goes on to say in verse number 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities." Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And we were, when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. And did you know, friend, that every time we have the opportunity and the privilege to witness to somebody and see a sinner converted to a saint, did you know that's exactly what you're doing? You're ripping them from the jaws of Satan and delivering them to the wonderful hands of Jesus. And that's what Paul says his commission given by Jesus was, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance." For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. His defense is this. I've done nothing but do exactly what God wanted me to do. Like Peter told this council, uh, the Sanhedrin council before, I think we ought to obey God rather than men. Paul says, I've just done exactly what God asked me to do. For these causes, what causes? Oh, delivering people from Satan to the Lord. What causes? Oh, just sharing what Christ has done in my life with other folks. I've not done anything wrong. I've not stolen anything. I've not hurt anybody or harmed anybody. I've just told them about the life-changing power of Jesus. For this cause, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, notice this, this is great, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. 
Can you imagine the life of Paul uh, ministering to little servant girls and seeing them saved, and now he stands before kings being able to share the same message? The message that we share in common is a message that transcends poverty levels. It transcends cultural boundaries. It transcends all type of stereotypes or racial uh, 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 situations. The Gospel will work for anybody and everybody. That's what Paul says. To this day, I continue to do what God has asked me to do. The Bible says saying none other things than those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that He should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as He thus spake for Himself, Festus, now may I remind you, we did not have the opportunity to read the passages that lead up to this, But Festus, before this statement, has been rather indifferent to Paul's case. He has not really found him guilty. He has been very intrigued by the case as uh, displayed by his intrigue and to take it to King Agrippa. And now he, out of almost reaction from hearing everything that Paul has mentioned, especially when he got to the part about that Jesus being the first to raise from the dead... When he gets to that part, the Bible says, And Festus said to Paul with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. Christian, I want to be very clear tonight. The gospel has always divided people. Jesus did not come to bring a message of unity. He came to bring one of hope, but He promised that it would be a sword. And what happens here is... Festus, although before, was very indifferent to the situation. Not really wanting to side with Paul, not, certainly not wanting to side with the Jews who had no proof and were crafting lies. Now, uh, Festus looks at Paul and he says, I've come to my conclusion. You're talking about a man raised from the dead. You're talking about all sorts of heavenly visions and whatnot. I'm telling you right now, Paul, you're crazy. That's what's happening in Scripture. Verse 25. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. And then I can imagine the stage shift. As Paul has been addressing what I view in my mind as this large assembly held with King Agrippa right there and King Agrippa's sister to his side and Festus right there. This, and I'm sure in a wonderful palace, a wonderful building, I'm sure all this takes place. Festus reacts in almost anger, deciding and giving his ruling. And now Paul looks directly into King Agrippa's eyes. And you want to know what he says? He says... For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. Now, notice that. Festus sits here on the side of King Agrippa, and and Paul intentionally points to Uh, King Agrippa as understanding everything that he said. And if you've ever had the opportunity to witness to people, especially like in children's church, you might be surrounded by four or five children who raise their hand to go forward thinking it was a bathroom break. And many times you go around the room and and you ask certain questions and, and you'll ask them something like, now what did you raise your hand for? I thought I was answering a question. Okay, you can go be seated. Uh, What did you raise your hand for? I just was tired of sitting down, so I wanted to stand up and leave the room. Okay, you can go back into the room and be seated. What did you raise your hand for? And out of this group of three to five kids, one will say something like this. I need to ask Jesus into my heart. And out of this, this assembly of children, you have... 
four kids that you know have no idea what type of eternal consequences are at hand right now. But you have one that you can clearly tell the Lord is dealing with. Anybody that tells me that a child cannot be saved, I want to take them back there and see the look in a child's face as he realizes for the first time he is a sinner and he is guilty before God. And that's what's happening here. He looks at all these people and Festus says, Much learning doth made thee mad. You're crazy, Paul. And he says, King, you know what I'm talking about. You're hearing every word that I'm saying. He says, For I am persuaded that none of these things, what things? Oh, heavenly visions. Amazing conversions from uh, uh, assassin to preacher. Uh, I'm talking about the kind of things where you start speaking of a man dying and being buried and three days later raising from the dead because he said he would. I'm talking about those kind of things. And Paul says, I'm persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Paul is almost cheering now. Because at the end of every gospel presentation, there is a moment where it is no longer your responsibility. As a witness, you've done everything you can do to share. You've done everything that you can do to, to ask them and keep them engaged. And maybe you've shared some funny stories or personal illustrations. But there's a point where, where the gospel decision no longer rests at your feet. And you have to say, do you believe what I've told you? And now the, the response will indicate the direction of the conversation. If he says... No, I I don't believe a word you've said. You say, well, King Agrippa, I'm sorry. I'll be praying for you, and if you ever have any questions, I'll be glad to answer them for you. If he says, yes, I believe. Paul, I believe. I've I've heard these stories, and I know I've, I've heard the rumors of Jesus. Paul, I've never heard it like this. Paul, I believe. Paul says, let's bow our head and close our eyes. But his response no longer depends on Paul. It is completely and totally dependent upon his reaction to the Holy Spirit's work in his heart. Verse 28. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the privilege and the opportunity You have given me to preach tonight. Lord, I pray that You'd give me liberty. I pray that You'd give me the, the power, both physical, emotional, and spiritual, to preach this message. Lord, may You... Use me as just simply a glove in the hand of an almighty God. Lord, please speak to us tonight, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just this past week, Thursday night, preacher mentioned it to you. Me and Brother Sean O'Dell had the opportunity to go soul winning. Let me encourage you every Thursday night this month, and preacher mentioned it this morning, but every Thursday night... Our staff members will be up here at the church. We're going soul winning. Um, sometimes we'll go with prospects, which is the case of this particular visit. Other times we'll just go knock some doors, ask people if they know Jesus is their Savior. But let me encourage you, if you have an open Thursday night, I'd love to go with you. Um, or, or you can go with one of our other staff members. It's really up to you. We'd love to have you come out. Thursday night, me and Brother Sean picked up just a few... Uh, uh, prospect visits we had two to make we went to the first house and nobody was there it was pretty apparent there was not a car in the driveway and uh, it's a pretty good indication most generally we walked across the road because i saw a door was open 
the glass door was closed, but the, the, the actual home door was open. And so I said to Brother Sean, I know they're home, so let's go knock on their door. And so we go over there and we ring the doorbell and uh, guess what happened? They just, nobody was home, I guess. They just left their door completely open. It was very odd that uh, somebody would leave their door open and not be at home. It was weird. We could hear whisperings and rumblings. If we don't move, maybe they'll go away. You know, it's just a, a strange visit, but nonetheless. Uh, so we really hadn't had much luck. We get back in the truck, our other visits in Joshua. We drive down the road, we pull into the driveway, and there stands a guy and two buddies. And frankly, I didn't know which one was the particular prospect that we were supposed to be seeing. But I said, are you Whitney? And he said, yeah, I'm Whitney. And so I began to talk to him. And at first, I just kind of asked them what they were doing. They were working on a tractor. Another guy was about to shoot some baskets. And I told him, well, normally I would take you to school, but I just had an appendectomy, so I can't school you tonight. And he just laughed. He said, you couldn't school me even if you were all good. But uh, uh, either way, it was kind of fun. We, we kind of just talked a little bit about what they were doing and what was going on in their life. I, I was interested in finding out why he had come to our church before and what his backstory was. And it just so, it's so unique how God works these types of situations out, but it just so happened Brother Sean and him grew up in the same area as kids, and we had that to talk about. And uh, actually, I, did, I asked Sean not to speak for fear it would give a bad impression to the young man, but uh, no, so we talked there a little bit, and at one point I finally came to, to what we were there for, and I said, guys, you know, I, I'm not really here to ask you about church. I, I would love for you to come back to church, but... Here's a question I have for you. You guys ever thought about what happens after you die? I said, man, we can watch Looney Tunes and realize that there's two places called heaven and hell. You ever thought about that? And then I said, here's another question I have for you guys. On a scale from zero to 100%, how likely would you think that you are of ending up in heaven? The guy that we came to make the visit with... He said pretty much immediately, 100%. And I said, shoot. No, 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 no. No, I didn't say that. It's good. That's the answer we want. I looked at the other two guys and I said, what about you? And he said, I'd say about 70%. I said, 70, huh? What about you? Yeah, I'd say 72 uh, it was a pretty awesome night. We were able to eventually go through the plan of salvation. Both those two young men accepted Christ as their personal Savior. It was a wonderful night. Uh, it really charged me up as a, as a Christian. And man, a lot of Christians wonder why they're not excited about their faith the way they used to be. Go see someone saved and see if it cranks you up a little bit. Just, just try doing it. Give it a whirl. It's like crack for a Christian. Um, <laughs> All right, good. We all good? Mandy, you like that one? Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. I don't know why I said that. Probably shouldn't have. I'll see that in a, 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 a demotion or a cut and pay tomorrow. I'm not entirely sure. But we're very excited. And as I've thought about what took place that night, my mind has constantly kept going back to 70%. 70% is pretty good. I mean, if I had a, a 70% at a lot of things in life, I would take those odds. In fact, there were times when I was in school that a 70 sounded really good. Because there is a chasm, a great gulf fixed between 69 and 70. Mama gets into your tailbone if it's 69. Mama looks at you with disappointing eye, disappointed eyes at 70. But there's a big difference. In school, sometimes 70 wasn't all that bad. But in terms of the decision that those two young men made, it's a tremendous handicap. It simply won't work. Seventy in so many walks of life is a passing grade. And yet in eternity it fails every single time. We live in America 
certainly some would even consider us in the Bible Belt. We have churches on, on nearly every street. And yet I wonder if a vast majority of Americans don't find themselves at 70%. Because there's a tremendous difference between even 99% and 100 We could go and maybe interview some men in the Bible. We could ask the rich young ruler after his encounter with Jesus what percentage he thought he would be at. Maybe it was higher than 70%. Maybe before Judas denied our Lord and, and, and betrayed Him, uh, maybe we could go ask Judas, Judas, what percentage would you say that you'll make it into heaven? Maybe it was just a little bit higher than 70%. But you understand, 70% is a failing grade when it comes to eternity. But both the rich young ruler and Judas and King Agrippa had things in common that I believe a lot of people in America don't have. Number one, they have a challenge. What do you mean by that, Brother Andrew? I mean somebody got in, the, got in their face about where they were. For the rich young ruler, he approached Jesus and he said, Oh, all these things have I done from my youth. I, I've been a really good guy. And Jesus says, But one thing thou lackest. Maybe that was 99%. Somebody confronted them and challenged them on the basis of their reason and their intellect and all that they believed about God. He said, you lack one thing. For Judas, oh, he tried living the Christian life. He tried being the, the Christian that everybody thought he ought to be. But he always had his one sin he would never get rid of. Not to mention that, he frankly couldn't have believed that Jesus was who He said He was if He was going to do what He eventually did to Him. And yet every single night around a campfire, Jesus taught him uh, 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 parables and concepts that, that simply mean you don't even uh, have a hard time understanding. And yet uh, he, uh, Judas was there to hear the very words of Jesus as He taught on things like eternal life and He taught on the fact that Jesus would eventually hang and die for the sins of the world. Judas heard that and he was challenged. King Agrippa had one of the greatest preachers, certainly the greatest missionary to ever live besides the Lord Jesus, look him right in the eye and preach a message to him. Challenging everything that he previously thought. And yet, he said, almost 70%. You see, he challenged him on the basis of two things. Number one, his current practices. His current practices. I want you to see in verse number 20, the Bible says, uh, well, verse number 19, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and to the Gentiles. Notice this, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. He was very clear about the expectations after salvation. In fact, we oftentimes think of repentance as something that takes place after salvation. Frankly, it takes place at salvation. He says, the, the message that I was given to preach was one that changes people. And people that get saved don't do on Tuesday what they used to do on Tuesday night because Jesus has now made a change in their life and He challenged him on the basis of the life that He was currently living. Rome was such a wicked culture and civilization. They did not care for life at all. You see, they, they held games, gladiator games, as sport and jest, watching men die. Very few of them were volunteers. Most of them were slaves forced into the arena to fight for their life as people stood around cheering. Had no concern for life. It was a sexually illicit culture. Prostitution was legal and registered with the government. 
It was not a, a problem if someone in high esteem would occasionally partake in prostitution. It was not a problem for some, uh, even the highest ranking governmental officials to, to uh, uh, have homosexual practices in their life. This was a wicked civilization. There was a Jewish historian that even accused this same King Agrippa to be in a, uh, a relationship, a sexual relationship with his very own sister. Now, that's not Bible. I don't know if it's true. But I'm telling you, the, the course of King Agrippa's life so far has not been a good one. He's not been exposed to a lot of righteous living. And I think you could probably even come to the conclusion, based upon his culture and his civilization, that he himself partook in evil things. And I like how Paul challenges him almost first thing, right off the bat, and he says, King Agrippa, the message I've been sent to preach is one of repentance. Yeah. You know what repentance is? It's a changing of mind. It, acted out, it is like this. We are headed in one direction, and at repentance, we turn to God in agreement with His definition of sin. And it is only when true repentance comes in the Christian's life that we can accept divine forgiveness. Not that it is extended to us, but we can accept it. You understand what Paul said right off the bat was, King Agrippa, I'm going to get to some very wonderful aspects of the gospel story. I'm going to tell you all about a Savior who will be your friend. I'll tell you about a Savior who will hold your hand through the valley, who will help you uh, when you're up on the mountaintop. King Agrippa, I'm going to tell you all the promises of the Bible. There's going to be some good ones. There's going to be some great ones. And there's going to be some that are your favorite. King Agrippa, there's some scripture that I promise you speaks directly to you, how the Lord will help the, the king. King Agrippa, there's going to be some great things in the Christian life. But you must first repent. And he challenged him. Look, I don't have a problem, well, that much of a problem, with a lot of modern-day churches' ways of worship. Man, they can worship however they want. It's their church. Let them do it. They, they can do all sorts of things. They can have as many guitars as they want. I like the sound of a guitar, especially when Chris plays it. He's pretty good at it. Chris, it's good, good job at it. Even with a hand, man, that's pretty good. You see, I don't necessarily have a problem with, with their outreach programs or, or the type of people they are. I'm telling you right now, some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life go to churches that I kind of look at and I'm like, what? You know what my main problem is? Repentance has been removed from the gospel like a dentist removes a healthy tooth. Repentance has always been a key aspect of the plan of salvation. With no repentance, there is no remission, I believe. The Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. And those are the good parts of the verse that we always focus on. But the Bible goes on to say, But that all should come to repentance. The gospel message has always been a challenging message, and it was as Paul stood and faced King Agrippa. He not only challenged him on the basis of his current practices, he challenged him on the basis of his current knowledge. Verse 23, the Bible says that Christ should suffer, and that He should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. You see, as Christians, our journey does not begin with intellect and reason. It begins with faith. Therefore, our witness must not be built upon intellect and reason. It must be built upon faith. You see, what Paul says here is he looks right in King Agrippa's face and he says, King Agrippa, I know that when I tell you a man died 
and by his own power and foreknowledge raised himself from the dead, I know it's hard to believe, but he didn't, he didn't hide the difficult aspects of Jesus. You see, nobody in this world disputes that Jesus was a good teacher. Nobody in this world disputes that the things that He did, as far as miracles go, are good things. But when you come to the fact that He said He would raise from the dead, and He did raise from the dead, a lot of people start having a problem with those types of terms. And, and the natural man, and the common man, with common knowledge has a hard time swallowing this pill that Jesus rose from the dead. Everything about us has a beginning and an end. You buy an iPhone, three weeks later you expect the screen to be cracked. The beginning and the end. You buy a new car, next year model, you expect to be envious of the features on the new car and why don't you have them on your car? Everything that we know, children have a beginning, and we know that it's appointed unto man wants to die. We, everything in our universe has a beginning and an end. And now to look in the face of an educated man, a king nonetheless, and say, King Agrippa, this Jesus that I believe in, he was not just a good man. He was not just a great man. King Agrippa, he was the God man. And when he came to this earth, he masked himself in, in flesh. And he walked this earth, and he never did a single thing wrong. And King Agrippa, he hung on that cross for your sins and for my sins, so that our righteousness or our sins might be placed upon him and his righteousness would be placed upon us. And if that was not hard enough to believe that God could die for you, King Agrippa, he rose again for you. Although death has captured every person in this life, every friend, every relative you've ever had, it could not keep Jesus down. And I like how Paul did not change the difficult parts of the gospel. In fact, did you know that the Bible tells us that we must believe that God rose Him from the dead in order to be saved. If you confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, well, we could believe all sorts of things. What do you have to believe? That God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And Paul didn't hide this to what many consider foolishness. Just, just fairy tales, uh, uh, bedtime stories, if you will, of this, this man who could come and, and do all these wonderful works. Paul didn't change or, or, or uh, leave out one detail. He said, uh, King Agrippa, Jesus died and rose again for you. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. See, no common man, no common reason, no common knowledge or intellect will ever accept Jesus on the basis of their merits. Only faith can accept the things of God. Only faith can see that Jesus died. Only faith can believe that He rose again on the third day. And only faith can accept the greatest truth in human history that He died for you. Only faith sees these things. Faith sees a Savior, uh, foolishness, uh, 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 sees uh, someone who made up stories and died like everyone else. He challenged him on the basis of his practices. He challenged him on the basis of his current knowledge. He stood in his path and said, King Agrippa, you will go no farther until you hear this message I have for you. Christian, when's the last time you stood to challenge someone? We challenge people all the time. This week I got in an argument about how good Nolan Ryan did for the Rangers when he was here and how many hot dogs he sold. We challenge people on the most foolish and nonsensical things. We challenge people on whether the Cowboys are going to be good. We challenge people on whether Pikachu could actually beat Bulbasaur. It's for you, Mandy. We challenge people on whether Chevy is better than Ford. 
or Ram just surpassed them all. Uh, but we challenge people about the most foolish things. We challenge people on whether it's better to be a liberal or a, a, a Republican. We challenge people on uh, whether the, our, uh, uh, the sun is prettier coming up in the east or going down in the west. We challenge people on everything, and yet Christians have taken a back seat on their responsibility to stand in the way of sinners and say, if you do not repent and accept Jesus on the basis of the resurrection, you will die and go to hell. And our backbones have gotten weak. We're no longer bold. Our witness is, is tarnished because of our lifestyles. It's a, it's a shame Amen. that people hover in this 70% zone. All the while, we're not willing to have the courage and the boldness to preach the life-changing message that has already once affected us. Selfish, really, if you think about it. He had a challenge. Secondly, I want you to see He had a clear presentation. Something that a lot of people in America simply don't get. I would submit to you, it would be more difficult to find a true preaching of Jesus in America than it would be in some of our bordering countries. You say, there's no way, Brother Andrew, they don't have as many churches. I'm telling you, we have too many churches. It is amazing me. A Mexican restaurant shuts down. Guess what goes in there? The bridge under the water church. A little tykes gym shuts down. Guess what goes in there? River Life Geneva Quartet Baptist Church. It is ridiculous how many churches we have. And, and, and what I'm saying is, sometimes if you get too much activity in water, you only get mud. And people have to weed through every denomination and every religion. They don't know whether the Virgin Mary did something for Jesus or whether she does something for you. They don't know whether reincarnation is a Christian belief or a a Buddhist belief. They could not tell you if you asked them. They stand in ignorance. Right next to some of the boldest preaching churches in the world. How is that? They don't get a clear presentation. Paul gave one to Agrippa. He first of all gave him his testimony. And let me say this. Every quality gospel presentation will have some level of your testimony in it. And usually it will have three aspects of your testimony. Number one, it will often speak of your corruption. Verse number 9 of chapter 26. The Bible says... Paul, reciting to him his own personal testimony, he tells Agrippa that at one point he was in his place. I call this the sin element. Paul says in verse 9, I verily thought myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I used to be on your side. I used to be on these accusers' side. I persecuted the church. Verse 10, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I punished them oft in their every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Paul stands in front of King Agrippa and says, you know, there was a time in my life when I, always, I wasn't always as polished as you see me today. I've got skeletons just like you, King Agrippa. In fact, mine are pretty bad. And man, sometimes people get envious of other people's testimonies. We think, oh, I wish I had that testimony. I want you to understand something. The Bible says, all flesh is as grass. It withereth and fadeth away. All flesh is wicked. I don't care if it's six-year-old flesh or 60-year-old flesh, although one's a bit more wrinkled than the other. It's just as sinful. I mean, I don't take these teenagers to youth camp hoping they'll get saved at 12 and 13 so that we can look back on them and say, well, you don't have a very good testimony. You should have gotten some sin later on in your life. Look, Paul looks at King Agrippa and says, "I, I was just like you once. 
I believed all this stuff was baloney too. I heard of this Jesus dying and being rose again and I laughed at people. I put them in prison. I persecuted them. I killed them. He shared of his previous corruption. King David had many things that he could glory about, many things that he could brag about. You know what he said in Psalm 51? I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David realized that just because he slew a giant, just because he collected all of the things for the temple of Solomon to be built, just because he did all these admirable things, you know what King David realized? I'm a sinner. And I've been a sinner since the day I got into this stinking world, and I'll probably be a sinner when I go out of this world. But thanks to God, He did something for me. And that's what Paul says. He says, King Agrippa, I kind of used to be like you. And you know what that does as you begin to share your testimony with somebody? It puts their guard down and lets them know that you're not judging them. Think about this. If I went up to Miss Holly... And what I'm about to say is very true, okay? Holly, you're a downright, rotten, wicked sinner. How is she supposed to take that? I mean, it seems kind of like I'm being abrasive with my language. Do Do you feel that way? I mean, you think she could take that wrong? I think she could. But did you know every time you give a gospel presentation, that's exactly what you're telling someone? You can't say, you know, you're probably not all that bad. I know that. <laughs> there goes my paycheck back up. You see, uh, this is a game we play. <laughs> what, what I'm saying is, you have to communicate some, tremendous, some tremendously difficult truths when you're giving the gospel. There is none righteous, no, not one. They have altogether become unprofitable. They are all gone out of the way. There is none that seeketh God. There is none that understandeth, the Bible says. You have to tell somebody, look them in the eye and say, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. And when you say this, you know, not long ago I found myself in the very same place you are. It kind of makes that truth a little bit more attainable. It makes them be able to swallow that difficult truth knowing that you don't stand as this pious Christian judging the wicked sinner before you. It lets them know that you're a human too. And so uh, uh, Paul looks at King Agrippa and he begins to tell of his corruption. Secondly, he tells of his conversion. His conversion. Look in verse number 12. He says, whereupon King Agrippa, he kind of takes a turn here. He says, whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, I was doing what I did every day. I was being the wicked man that I was every day. At midnight, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. As I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. You see, he not only tells how wicked he used to be, he tells of the moment where he was in the chair that that person's sitting in. He says, you know, mine had a little bit more fireworks than yours will, King Agrippa. But I was on my way to Damascus, and man, there shone round about me a light so bright, I fell to the earth. In fact, it cost me my vision. I I couldn't believe what was going on, and I asked who this was. And he responded to me, and he said, "Uh, yeah, you know who this is. This is Jesus. And he tells him not only of his, his corruption, he tells him of his actual conversion. The things about his testimony that made his special to him. You know what I remember about my testimony? I could take you to the tile in Lindell, Texas, upon which my knee knelt and upon which I got saved. I, could, I couldn't tell you the sermon. I frankly couldn't tell you the preacher. I can tell you the, the, the room, I can tell you the place, and I can tell you the emotions that I felt that night when I asked the Lord to save me. 
And so I began to share that with folks that I witnessed to, just like Paul shared his. It helps them understand that you were where they are. And that one day somebody had to take a Bible, open it up, and share with you the same life-changing truth that they themselves are having to receive. He told not only of his corruption and his conversion, he told thirdly of his change. Of his change. Verses 19 and 20. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, after all this happened, he told me that he had a mission for me. He told me that I would be teaching small and great. He told me that I would, uh, I would go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He told me that I was to be a minister for him. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. You see, you have the sin element, you have the self element, and now you have the satisfied element. He looks at King Agrippa and he says, I want you to know, King, I don't regret the decision I made that day on the Damascus Road. From that moment on, I got saved. Jesus changed my life. I was a sinner, then I became a saint. My life was full of wickedness, now my life is seeking after righteousness. King Agrippa, I'm trying every day to walk closer with Jesus. King Agrippa, I have changed since Jesus came into my heart. Behold, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I question the validity of salvation of someone who gets saved and nothing takes place in their life other than a prayer and a tear and the filling out of a piece of paper. How is that person saved? I don't find a single case in the Bible where that's what salvation looks like. So when you're giving the gospel and you've shared with them the fact that you you were a sinner and you shared with them the fact of the day you personally got saved... And then you share with them this fact. And since that day, I've never been the same. When you share that with them, are they willing to accept that as truth? I mean, if this was your mother you were witnessing to, would she have noticed the difference from that date to this date? Paul says, I was not disobedient. From that moment on, I began to follow Jesus with my whole life. If somebody's not willing to get in the baptistry after they're saved, that is the first step of obedience. Is that not what Christ asks us to do first? And so, although it may be difficult, although it may be cumbersome, although it may take you to swallow some pride, if you have not gotten biblically baptized, you have not started to obey. And what Paul says is, I was not disobedient. I started to change and my testimony is clear. I am a redeemed child of God. Paul's testimony, he had a clear uh, presentation of not only Paul's testimony, but Paul's teaching. Look in verse 22. Now, I certainly believe that every gospel presentation ought to include your testimony. But do not build your gospel witness upon your personal experiences. If you spend five minutes telling stories about you and two minutes telling stories about Jesus, you think something's wrong? Testimony is a good thing, but Paul teaches him. In verse 22, and he says, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue to this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Notice, this is very important. He does not build his witness upon his recollection. He builds his witness upon Scripture. And he says, King Agrippa, this is not my concoction. Every prophet, every uh, book that Moses ever wrote was all in uh, uh, in precursor to what Jesus would come to do. It all aligns, it all agrees. Uh, King Agrippa, it's all in the prophets and Moses. And then he says, what? That Christ should suffer and that He should be the first that should rise from the dead. What do you have there? You have the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Friend, if you struggle sharing the gospel because you have difficulty remembering the scriptures, 
I would encourage you to make it the principal pursuit in your life. Say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Every evening, go home and begin to memorize and learn scriptures that allow you to teach about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Too many, too many Christians are, are terrified to share the gospel. You want to know why? Because they are fearful that they will not be able to recall scripture at the time of witnessing. They'll say, but I might get John 3.16 down and go blank. So my encouragement to you is, Christian, make your gospel witness presentation the prime pursuit in your life, if, if that's where you are in your Bible knowledge. Because it ought to go enough scripture to get you saved and enough scripture to get someone else saved, and then you can start studying the real, real deep things of theology. You ought not know more about the rapture than you do about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because I frankly have never been asked one time when giving the gospel presentation, yes, but shall we go during the millennial, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, or uh, in the middle of the tribulation? When shall we go? Brother Marshall, has that question come up very often with you? Never. So we ought not major on these tremendous theological things. You should probably not spend too much time figuring out how much oil it would take the camel to pass through the eye of the needle as we would learning Scripture that would allow us to teach someone how they can know for a fact that they're on their way to heaven. Oh, it's so simple. But we ought to be able to prove that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Because it's only those teachings, that teaching right there, that can save a man from hell. King Agrippa had things that a lot of people in America don't have. He had a challenge. He had a clear presentation. Finally, he had a choice. Verse number 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? You notice Paul doesn't say, believe you. do you believe me? No, he says, do you believe the Bible? Do you believe Scripture? Do you believe everything that Jesus claimed? Is is this what you believe, King Agrippa? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto him, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. It was never Paul's decision to make. In fact, God never commanded Paul to save people. He only commanded him to be a witness. Too many Christians are paralyzed by the fear of rejection. They're paralyzed of the fear that somebody might say unto them, I don't want to get saved after spending 15 minutes with them giving the plan of salvation. We're terrified of that. But may I say to you, they're not rejecting you as, as a disciple. They're rejecting your master. They're not saying that you didn't do a good job. They're not saying that you're not a good person. They're not saying any of those things. They're saying, almost, I am persuaded to believe on Jesus. And I tell you, right now, I feel inadequate to lead someone to the Lord. You say, Brother Andrew, how is that? Because this thing is so great. What takes place is so great. I just have to tell you, I worry so much about the things that I say and whether I'll time it right or say it right or use this right example. And every time I start to look back and I say, I don't know if I did that the right way. And you know what I have to say to God? God, I did what you asked. So now I ask you to take care of any shortcomings that I might have put in there. And this is what I, I would kind of use Paul's words. Paul's words. If God, Wanted to use you as a witness. Does that seem like too hard of a thing for him to do? Say, Brother Andrew, I only know about three or four verses. That's perfect. It only takes about that many. But at least he had a choice. You know what happens? Listen to me, I'm almost done. 
we choose for our neighbor because of our unwillingness to share. We say, well, I could never, and so we decide they will never. We say, there's no way I could ever have the courage, so we decide for them that they'll never have conversion. King Agrippa stood in front of Paul. Paul looked him in the eye and said, King Agrippa, today is your day. You've heard enough truth. I've given you the opportunity. King Agrippa, now do you accept Jesus upon everything that he says? And King Agrippa says, no, not quite. But it was not Paul's responsibility to decide for him. And every time we feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our life to share the gospel with someone or to leave a track at a restaurant table and we fail to do so, you know what we do? We make a decision. Oh, listen to me. Not a decision to disobey God, because that's obvious. A decision to then make God use other means. What a shame. In 1965... A federal uh, ruling called the Federal Cigarette Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act made it to where every single carton and every single pack of cigarettes must have this message on it. Caution. Cigarette smoking may be hazardous to your health. In 1967, the Federal Trade Commission issued its first report to Congress recommending that the warning label be changed to this. Warning, cigarette smoking is dangerous to health and may cause death from cancer and other diseases. In 1969, Congress passed the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act, which changed it to where cigarette companies and tobacco companies could no longer advertise on radio or television, and that every packet and every carton of cigarettes must say this, Warning, the Surgeon General has determined that cigarette smoking is dangerous to your health. I'm not here tonight to make you feel bad if you are a smoker, but I am here tonight to suggest to you that you have made the the decision in your life to continue a habit that is unhealthy for you. Leave out the spiritual mumbo-jumbo. You're dying every time you inhale. And you've made that choice. And, and thousands and, and probably millions of Americans have made that choice. In 19... Uh, well, I'm sorry, in 2014... A woman by the name of Cynthia Robinson sued one of the largest tobacco companies, R.J. Reynolds. And the court awarded her $23.6 billion. She sued them on the grounds of her husband contracting a, a, a disease that eventually ended his life prematurely at the age of 36 years old. Her husband's name was Michael, and he started smoking at 13. Now, if you want to do the math a little bit, the first cigarette that Michael ever put to his mouth made him, uh, would have been approximately five years after these labels were created and mandated. Every cigarette Michael ever put to his mouth, he looked directly at a package and it said, Caution, this will kill you. Now, as I studied this and I looked over the case and I I read articles about it, I I found within myself, as uh, this woman and her attorney accused these tobacco companies of not letting people know about the inherent dangers of cigarette smoking, I found myself kind of saying, if he ever picked up a cigarette before those labels were mandated, they have a case. But the fact that it was four to five years after, I kind of thought to myself, I don't think they have a leg to stand on. He would have had to have been blind to not have seen 
down the side of this packet. Caution! This will be hazardous to your health. And yet, a court in Florida awarded them compensation on the basis that these tobacco companies did not do a good enough job warning people and letting them have an educated decision. Now listen to me. If in an earthly court case, a company who puts a disclaimer on every package of, uh, uh, of merchandise that they sell... And they say, warning, I'm trying to warn you, don't do this if you're worried about death. If a human court can award that lady grounds for uh, 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 winning the case, man, I wonder what God's divine court's going to look like. Because I'm here to tell you right now, I believe a vast majority of Americans stay somewhere in that 70% range. And we're not doing our best to tell. We stand handicapped and paralyzed with fear. And yet all the while people hover in this 70% range of not knowing. I wonder if one time in their life they ever pick up a track from our church. I wonder if one time in their life they ever hear their employee ask them, invite them to church. If in a humanly court, that lady's awarded compensation, there is no compensation in God's court. You understand, there's no amount of money that will make it okay what we fail to do here on earth to these people dying and going to hell. And I'm not here to make you afraid. I'm not here to shame you into being the witness you ought to be. I'm here today just to say this. Let's give them a fighting chance. And let's take the choice out of our hands and place it in theirs. And if they choose to reject Jesus on the basis that they don't believe the message or on the basis that He's not going to do what He promised He would do, then it's their decision. And we can go to heaven with no uh, worry about what we failed to do here on earth. But I'm afraid to say if God's court happened tonight, I would stand guilty before Him because of my failure to do what He's asked me to do. Do you have any 70 percenters in your life? Maybe at work? Maybe at school? Where is it? Because I looked two young men in the face and I said, how sure are you? And they said, 70%. And in every area, in every walk of life, 70% ain't half bad. But when it comes to this decision, it's not enough. 